Well, Merry Christmas. I love Christmas. I get really nostalgic about Christmas. I don't know about you. Uh, you think back about um, Christmas Eve, sitting by the fire, and there's the warm glow of the Christmas lights on Dad's face. Everyone sitting around with hot chocolate, and your dad takes open his Bible, like my dad did, and he opens his Bible, and he starts to read these words. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under. That's how it went, right? Not really. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. It's a time of laughter and levity. But there is a troubling side to Christmas. There is a side of Christmas that we often don't hear much about, do we? I mean, when have you ever seen a nativity play with Herod in it? Have you? And we talk a lot about snow. We talk about peace descending and calm. We talk a lot about, a lot about things that aren't in the biblical account, but we overlook something that was very central to the biblical account. Herod. I think that's because we, let's be honest, we like our Bible PG. Maybe PG-13. Maybe. But that's not the Bible that God's given us. Because that's not the world that we live in. That's not the world that Jesus came to rescue. Now the world that Jesus entered in to rescue is a world where sadly parents abuse children. It's a world where religious zealots take up arms and bomb the innocents. It's a world where police prejudice. It's a world where judges turn a blind eye. It's a world where the rich exploit the poor. It's a world where women have to vigilantly protect their bodies in the workplace. In other words, it's a world full of Herods. Jesus enters a world full of Herods. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. Herod started his political um, career very early. He was 25 when he became governor. And then he was declared to be, at age of 33, king of Judea. Upon um, ascending to uh, and having that title issued upon him, king of Judea, uh, Herod had executed 45 of the leading nobles in Judea, just to make sure that any potential rival didn't exist. If you were in his family, you didn't fare so well either. Uh, He had his brother-in-law killed, at the palace of Jericho. His mother-in-law, when she started exerting too much influence, you know, through the wife, yeah, he had her off as well. And there was also uh, his own wife. She didn't fare too well. She did put up a good fight, but he ended up executing her. His boys were young at that time, and Herod, he, 
he was always suspicious that they never forgave him. And so he ended up killing his own two sons. When Herod was older, before the days of Google, he had to figure out how to take a poll. And so he was obsessed with knowing his own fame. He would dress up in a costume and he would go around Jerusalem at night and he would ask, what do you think about King Herod? This is what you do before Googling your own self. Herod also, upon his death, would, uh, he would issue a decree that all these men and all these families were to be killed so that the day of his death would be a day of mourning. And he was going to ensure it. Herod. Herod was someone who, um, you know, when you read this story, I think that one reason that we overlook this story is, if I'm honest, it seems a little fanciful. Like, I can deal with miracles and angels announcing and other things, but this isn't, there's nothing miraculous about this. It just seems dramatic that he has all the infants killed in Bethlehem. It just doesn't feel true to history. And yet, when you learn about who Herod was and what he did, you realize that this is actually absolutely true to form from what we know of every other source. You see, Herod would Herod would stop at nothing. And his erratic temper and his insecure ego would stop at nothing to make sure that any potential threat of arrival was snuffed out. But the babe born in Bethlehem was neither potential, nor would he be his rival. So when Herod was duped by the wise men, and they didn't return to him and give him the news about where the child was, verse 16 says that he ordered the infanticide of every child under two years old. It's a horrible story. It's a horrible story. See, the Christmas story does not deny that there is real evil. It unabashedly affirms the grotesque reality of real evil in this world. The Christmas story has blood all over it. Because our Christmas stories do as well. It also doesn't deny that there is real loss. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. They are no more. The Christmas story does not deny that there is real grotesque evil in this world. And the Christmas story does not deny that there is real loss. Christianity does not bring joy to the world by denying the real evil. It does not. Christians may, but Christianity does not. 
I, uh, I love Christmas. I love, I love Christmas time. And one of my favorite memories of Christmas was when Pam and I were living in England, we went over to Germany to do a tour of the Weihnachtsmarkt. Weihnachtsmarkt is the Christmas markets in Germany, and they're so amazing because you just go around and you eat lots of pretzels covered with like nuts and Nutella and things like that, and, um, and you just drink lots of mulled wine, and it's wonderful. So we went over and we were going through these Christmas markets, and I've got these fond memories of Christmas markets, especially the, the covered hot nuts that they make. You know what I'm talking about. They have them at the fair and things like that. They've got these nuts like every so often. And the best part is like you go up to one and then you ask for a sample because you need a sample, right? You have to figure out what they're like. And then you go to the next one and you ask for a sample. And then you go to the next one and you ask for the sample because, you know, this guy's hazelnuts might be different than this guy's hazelnuts. And then by the end, you don't need to buy any because you're full. I love the Christmas market. I love the Christmas market. Last year, December 19th, Berlin, a truck, a terrorist, drove right through a Christmas market. Twelve died. Fifty-six were injured. There's blood all over the Christmas story. The grotesque reality of evil is there. And Christmas is not a denial of the real evil in this world, but it is an acknowledgement of a gift, of a gift that surpasses the evil, of something better, of something greater. You know, Herod, though, he not only shows us that there's evil in this world, but I also think he teaches us something. Something about this world full of Herods. I mean, what was it that incited Herod to slaughter all those children? Look at verses 1 through 3 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. What troubled Herod? Well, Matthew brings it through for us with a punch. What troubled Herod is that there was another king that was born. And Herod, he saw what we often overlook. That the birth of Jesus is not just the celebration of a baby born, but it is the coronation of a king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And here's the thing about kings. Kings are kind of like the Highlander. In the end, there can only be one. See, there are no rivals with kings. You can't have multiple kings. You can't have two kings sharing a throne. There's only one king. 
Let every heart prepare him room. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And what it means to prepare Jesus room. It does not equal the sentimentality of syrupy songs, but it is the surrender to a sovereign Lord. See, Herod understood that Jesus' enthronement meant our dethronement. And so I give Herod credit because he understood something about the birth in Bethlehem. He understood something that we often overlook. He understood that the birth of the babe in Bethlehem, it threatens something that we hold very dear. It, it threatens the things that we hold, some of us hold most dear in life. Like the ability to run our own lives. I mean, see, what was Herod really after? What was he so afraid of? What was he afraid of losing? Well, he was afraid of losing the ability to control his life, the ability to define morality as he would define it, the ability to value what he wants to value, the ability to have uh, someone else, uh, to not have to submit the knee to someone else. And so uh, I have to ask, am I so different than Herod? Maybe in degree, but in kind? One of my favorite, um, one of the best gifts that I got at Christmas, oh, my parents gave um, me, was a um, Sono speaker. And this Sono speaker has Alexa in it. If you don't know Alexa, Alexa is like Siri with a prettier voice. And you can talk to Alexa, and she plays things. And so I've got this Sonos speaker in our kitchen. Our family's been having a lot of fun with this. Um, we were loving, so we'd say, like, you know, Neve has even learned how to do it. So she's like, you know, Alexa, play Jingle Bells. And then um, Frank Sinatra Jingle Bells comes on, right? Uh, but then I would say, um, no, Alexa, play Sufjan Stevens. And then uh, Sufjan Stevens come on. And then, um, and then Pam went interrupt. No, Alexa, play Taylor Swift. No, I'm just kidding. But... Um, <laughs> And then, and then I would say, you know, uh, Alexa, turn it up. And then someone would go, Alexa, turn it down. No, Alexa, turn it up. No, Alexa, turn it down. And then we started to realize something. I don't need a counselor to pay for counseling to figure out the triangulation dynamics that are going on in my family. We just need Alexa. Alexa, like, is there, and we start realizing how we are getting so mad because we are not getting our own way. Like, I want the volume at one level, and I want this song played, and Pam wants the volume at a different level, and she wants this song played, and Neve wants the volume at yet a third level, and she wants this song played. And at the end of it, I'm just getting so upset that I'm like, Alexa, shut down, right? Because if Daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. (laughs) And it was my gift. Uh, How do you feel when you don't get your own way? How do you like it when someone else tries to run your life? I don't like it. I get really upset when people do things that actually start controlling my time and my schedule. I get grumpy. I don't, I don't like it when, I don't like it when I don't get to the, go to the restaurant that I want to go to on vacation. 
much less having a king of the universe come dictate what I should value, how I should value it, how I should live, how I should structure my time. See, we want to be in control of our own lives and we will do anything to ensure that that happens if given the opportunity. Daniel Defoe once said, all men would be tyrants if they could. And I think that's true. I was, um, I was in Newport Beach when we were exiled because of the ash and I was on Balboa Island and at this place called like the Crab cookery or something, um, there's this sign that says, do not look here. And, uh, and I was with this family and a boy said like, uh, Daddy, how come I always keep looking at the sign when it says, do not look here? Let me tell you why. Because you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And so the law incites its opposite. You say, absolutely not. I'm going to look at that sign. I don't care about looking at that sign, but the fact that you told me not to means I'm going to do it because I am in control. And yet there's a babe born in Bethlehem. And he is born king. See, the birth of the babe in Bethlehem, it, it, it threatens our ability to run our own lives. It also threatens, threatens our ability to live for ourselves. For our own glory, fame, reputation, and recognition. I was... Um, I was with Neve recently, and uh, and I complimented another child on something. I forgot what it was, and Neve looks up at me and very tellingly says, um, "Daddy, don't I do that well? Daddy, don't I do that well? Daddy." It was like she couldn't hear the praise of another, and that hurt so bad. And you know why it hurt so bad? Because Neve takes after me in a lot of ways, in too many ways. See, we say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And I'm okay with that as long as I get some glory too. But what happens when I'm not recognized? I heard, once heard a saying that um, leaders, they get praise for a lot of things. They get critique for a lot of things that they don't do. But that's okay because they also get praise for a lot of things that they don't do. Right? So they take it together. And I, and I think that's, that's pretty much right. Um, but, uh, but, but here's the thing, I want one and not the other. And if someone doesn't praise me for the things that I do have a contrib- contribution in, if I don't get recognition, I start getting like churny inside. How am I going to slip in that I was a contributor here? What about you? See, we need to reckon with the troubling side of Christmas, and that is this, that Jesus was born to reign in us forever. T.S. Eliot, he got this. He said, This birth was hard and bigger, bitter agony for us, like death, our death. Because the child born in Bethlehem, he bids us come and die. Die to self-determination, die to self-gratification, die to the ability to protect and promote our own egos, die to self, to live for him. And some of you here, you're on the fence about Christianity, 
And what I appreciate about you is that you get this. You really get this. And it's why you're on the fence about Christianity. Either you know it consciously or intuitively, but you know that actually what Jesus is claiming is everything. And because of that, you think, I don't know that I want to give up everything. The ability to control, the ability to save, the ability to have recognition and glory. And you know what? I appreciate the fact that you're counting the cost. Herod, he got it. There are others of us here that I'm not sure that we do get it. I think we ignore it. We think, Herod? How could we be like Herod? But you know what? Every time I willingly and consciously choose my way over what I know God's way is, every time I nurse a grudge, every time I give in to anxiety rather than give something up to Jesus, every time I protect my reputation rather than praise his, every time I covet another's possessions rather than cultivating gratitude for all that he has given me, every time I do those things, I find that there is a little Herod in me. See, how willing are we to let go, to surrender, to leave our reputation, our futures, to leave it up to him? And here's the thing, the only cure is to be brought low. The only cure is to be brought low. The irony is, is that as much as we might identify with the Magi who worship the Savior, and as much as we might identify with the shepherds who receive the good word, as much as we may identify with the angels who announce glad tidings, we also resemble Herod, who protected his own reign. And until we get that, We can't receive him and his reign. Christmas does not deny the gross reality of evil. And the world that Jesus enters into is a world full of Herods because there's a little Herod, I think, in all of us. But what Christmas does offer is not a denial of the reality of evil, but an acknowledgement of something better a gift, the gift of a king. Which brings us to the comforting side of Christmas. The comforting side of the Christmas is that this king, he uses his authority to protect us and to seal and secure our salvation. When the wise men in verse 12, there's this, when the wise men in verse 12 um, When they are about to head back to Herod, they are warned in a dream, verse 12 tells us, not to return to Herod about what he's doing. And so they don't go back, which gives gives Jesus, Joseph, and Mary time. You know, a king's ability to, uh, a king's power is shown as his ability to exert his rule. Who is exerting the rule here? And then in verse 13, it's not just the wise men that were warned, but an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And they do. They escape to Egypt. That there is evil in this world cannot and is not denied by the Christmas story. 
But in spite of the evil in this world and the evil in our own hearts, God protects his Savior in order to secure our salvation. Then when Herod dies, look in verse 19 and 20, that angel comes again in a dream and tells Joseph and Mary to go back to Israel. And so they do because it's safe. But then when they get there, they find out that one of Herod's descendants is reigning and that it's not safe to go to Judea. And so they end up going to Nazareth, verse 23. Who's orchestrating this story? Though there is evil in this world that cannot be and is not denied and should not be denied by the Christmas story, but God protects his Savior in order to secure our salvation. See, this story holds two things together that we have a hard time holding together, but we need to hold together. First, it affirms, it absolutely affirms that God is the sovereign Lord of history. The word fulfill keeps appearing in this passage. The flight into Egypt, verse 15 said, was to fulfill God's purposes and plan. Even the diversion to Nazareth in verse 23 is to fulfill the scriptures. And the weeping, the weeping in Bethlehem, even the weeping in Bethlehem fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah 17. I'm sorry, of Jeremiah in verse 17. See, Do you have a theology of the sovereignty of God? Because you need one. You need a theology of a God in whose universe there are no, as R.C. Sproul used to say, maverick molecules. Because if there were a maverick molecule, then your salvation could not be secured because that maverick molecule could overturn God and his plan. See, you need a theology of the sovereignty of God where everything, every single detail of this world and of life works out according to his purpose. That no one can thwart his plan, that no one can thwart his purpose, that no one can stay his hand. And you need that because this God enlists that sovereignty for your salvation. In spite of the evil in our own hearts and the evil in this world, God uses his power to protect his Savior, to secure our salvation. And in the face of political unrest and social upheaval and generational sin and family dysfunction, you need a theology of the sovereignty of God that will win in the end and that you know will win in the end and who cannot lose. You see, this story, it affirms that God is absolutely sovereign. And it affirms the gross reality of evil in this world. It does not undermine the reality of evil because of the sovereignty of God. It does not say, therefore, evil does not exist. It does not. And it does not deny that there is real loss and real grief. That not all was calm or bright and that there were threats to heavenly peace. And there is real loss in this world. I was once talking to someone, and uh, we were talking about the Job story. And they said, yeah, but Job got back his children. Which children? If God replaced my child with another child, I would say, what was wrong with the old one? 
There's real loss in Job's story. There's real loss. There was real loss on December 19th last year. And there was real loss in Bethlehem with weeping and wailing. And there's real evil and real sin. And it is real. And the reality of the sovereignty of God does not undermine that. We have to hold that together. We also have to hold that however mysteriously, however mysteriously, the losses that are incurred in the cosmic battle are nevertheless planned losses. And that nothing happens outside God's control. See, although there is evil in this world, and that cannot and should not be denied, nevertheless, in spite of the evil in this world and in our own hearts, God protects his Savior to secure our salvation. And Christmas is not a denial of the reality of evil, but it is the acknowledgement of something better, a king. A king who reigns for our salvation. And this king is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And this king is the one who in following is the only place that we find true and real freedom. Why? Well, you've heard it said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think that's true. Except in one place. Except in one place. You see, this title... This phrase, King of the Jews, that's used in the opening of chapter 2, it's used one other time in chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he said, You have said so. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered a whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed at his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus is the only one who while having absolute power and authority, does not use that power and authority and exploit it for his own advantage but he emptied himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He gives it up for you and for me. And this is why this is good news. Because we can't thwart him. My um, Two memories I have. I don't have very many memories playing as a child, but I have a couple. One was when I was outside and uh, and I was I had sticks, sticks, 
me and this other child, we were throwing the sticks at one another across. And we thought that was pretty fun, but it, the, the risks weren't high enough, so we went in and we grabbed knives. And we're throwing knives at one another across the backyard. And uh, one of my parents came out there, my mom, and she said, Stop! Put those down. In that moment, she exerted her authority to save my life. So I could not do what I want to do. Another time, I was um, playing, with, uh, playing with BB guns. And at first, we decided we would just shoot each other, but it had to be that it ricocheted off something. And then we decided that, you know, the accuracy is not very good when you're trying to ricochet. So then we just started shooting at each other. And one of my parents came out, stop, put those down. You can't do that. And my protection was because a parent lovingly exerted their sovereign authority over me save me from myself. This king, he is a gift. Because he is born as Lord and Savior. And he died to save us from our sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.